you know, our job is to spot, assess, develop, recruit, and handle agents. And an agent is not someone from the CIA. An agent is a foreigner we recruit to spy for the United States. And a lot of times their life is in our hands. And that is a tremendous responsibility because if you screw up, someone's going to die. This is Up in the Air, a show about travel adventures, frequent flying, and the unique experiences we have along the way. I'm Ian Agurmis, and in this episode, you'll hear from Mark Polymeropoulos about what it's like to recruit spies, live in the shadows, and travel the world undercover as an operations officer for the CIA. As far as large organizations go, it's hard to think of one that has a bigger gap between name brand recognition and public understanding than the CIA. This is intentional, of course. Much of what the agency has done since its founding in 1947 is notoriously classified clandestine or covert. Mark Polymeropoulos was tasked with collecting and acting on much of this information, and since he retired in July of 2019 after a 26-year career, he's been able to tell the story of his time at the CIA. Mark is an incredibly humble guy who refuses to believe his own hype, but before you listen to this, you should understand that he's the recipient of the Intelligence Commendation Medal, the Intelligence Medal of Merit, and the Distinguished Intelligence Medal, which is given for performance of outstanding services. By the end of his career, Mark had risen up to the ranks of Senior Intelligence Service, overseeing several thousand employees, and while it was tough to leave the people and culture of the agency, he looks back on the decision with no regrets. You have a career of not only of 26 years in the only organization, the only real job I ever had, but also the kind of the intensity of it. You know, I was on the operations side. And so this was not a nine to five job. It was pretty all consuming. So when you, so to speak, hang up the cleats, it can be an emotional time, but also, you know, when you're ready. And I think, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons, including some health reasons, um, I, uh, uh, you know, I, I retired in July of 2019, really with no regrets. Um, and you know, it's just time for a new chapter, uh, in my life and new challenges. And, uh, you know, so here we are. Yeah. How did you get interested in a career in national security? Ah, what a, what a great question. So I, I love telling the story because, and, and, and first and foremost, I, one of the things I enjoy, I think now more than anything is mentoring mm-hmm. the young college students or young professionals who are interested in national security. So I love talking about this, um, because I think it, you know, it's a, it is a, a you know, a, a very noble, uh, line of work, but for yeah. myself, you know, first of all, I was I was born in Greece, um, and so you know I had this kind of you know uh, uh, background. You know, my dad immigrated to the United States, but I was born in Greece just by by chance. My my mom's American, my dad's Greek. He was doing his compulsory military service in his mid thirties after he received his doctorate wow. at Cornell University. So they went back, and, and there I was. I was born. I was almost born on the Greek island of Mykonos. Uh, but in fact, my mom went into labor and uh, they flew me by helicopter to Athens. But but I kind of mm. throw this all out there is because each summer, you know, we returned to Greece. So I kind of had that worldly view. And, yeah. and then there's kind of two seminal events I love talking about that led me to the agency. One is when I was a when I was a kid, I read the book Caravan by James Michener, which is a story of a young foreign service officer in Kabul, Afghanistan, and a very different Kabul. This was, you know, in the in the post-war period, uh, you know, after, after World War Two. And so. So ultimately, it was a, you know, a, a place of great romance. It's kind of a Lawrence of Arabia type story. So I was, I was right then interested in, in kind of, you know, foreign affairs, foreign policy stuff. And then, you know, in addition, when I was, boy, I think I was 10 or 11 years old, my father was on sabbatical. Again, he was a professor, but he was teaching in Algeria. And my mom put me on an airplane by myself. And then <laughs> so I flew to Algiers. My father and I, for a month in a old Volkswagen minibus, drove through the Sahara Desert, kind of sleeping at night in, in desert oases. So wow, I fell in love incredible. with the Middle East at that time. So 
kind of a you know long long story that I had this kind of worldly view and uh, you know when I was in when I was in college at Cornell University was the school was visited by a recruiter from CIA and and off I went. Yeah, there's obviously like the interest in in national security and intelligence and getting out into the world and world affairs and those things. Obviously, you did a couple different things within the the agency and. I mean, this is a ridiculous overgeneralization, but your job was, it's kind of like the ultimate adventure travel job in in some senses. So I'm curious because it it sounds like you started as an analyst. So what inspired you to change over to the ops officer role? Yeah, that's a a fantastic question because, and and a lot of people ask me about that as well. So first and foremost, you know, I, you know, I, I, received my master's degree at, at Cornell University, my undergrad and my master's. I wrote my master's thesis in Algeria. So I was hired in by the CIA's analytic core um, to kind of do kind of Middle Eastern stuff. Uh, and I did that for a couple of years and I liked it. But what hooked me was in what, 1996, I went on a, uh, a kind of an extended trip to the Middle East and I kind of fell in love with the idea of being overseas. And so hmm. already, you know, I, I kind of, you know, thought about kind of the operation side, but really, you know, my my desire to come to the agency was to, to live overseas, to kind of immerse yourself in cultures and um, language, you know, of, of other people's. And so, so it was a pretty easy decision to kind of, to, to make that transition. And, yeah. and one of the guys, I love telling the story because my boss, my immediate boss on the analytics side was a guy by the name of John Brennan, who of yeah. course went on to become CIA director. So of I went course. to him and I said, look, I think I want to, I want to become a, a case officer, an operations officer. And he said, sure, no problem. Which, which looking back now means I probably was a pretty crappy analyst. Um, <laughs> a little too quick to, uh, take you up right. on the but but I tell this story a lot just because it's a, you know you're you're not enlisting in the military you know you, you don't have a, a certain time commitment so if you come come to the agency you come to you know the national security uh, sector and, and you get, kind of you're doing something you find that hey maybe you want to do something else like it's you know I'm glad I didn't go to I don't know Google wasn't around then or Facebook yeah. but you know I, I didn't leave I didn't go work on Wall Street I just found something else that was more to my liking within um, the intelligence community so I think that's a that's a good lesson as well. Yeah. You just kind of go find your calling. And, and for me, that was a, that ultimately it was operations. Yeah. I find it really interesting. And I know many other people do too. the nature of the secrecy uh, of the of the agency. And I wonder what it was like for you on a personal level. Once you joined to have to now become so conscientious of that confidentiality sure. and and such. First and foremost, you know, that's that's uh, that's the big sacrifice. Um, you know, if you join uh, the intelligence community. Um, and, and to some extent, the Department of State as well, you know, the diplomatic corps, but it's, it's really the federal government in the national security sphere. You know, you're, you are giving up some of your rights. Mm-hmm. So things that people take for granted in terms of, you know, what you put on social media um, or, or even who you, you know, are friends with. You know, there are countries that we have, you know, that for security reasons are, are non-fraternization countries. So, for example, like, you know, you can't really hang out with, you know, or, you know uh, uh, Iranians and Russians and, and others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Without, you know, without being really careful and of course reporting it. And so, you know, there, there is a, there is a, a sacrifice on this, but I'll tell you kind of on the flip side, you know, my job as, and especially as I went through training as a case officer, you know, at, at the end of it, it's not necessarily indoctrination, but you know, you, you feel pretty special. I mean, you've done something pretty special. You've gone through the selection, you've gone through the training and you are, you know, one of a select few yeah. who have, you know, is what you said, you know, the best adventure travel job on, on the planet, but you're really yeah. entrusted with the nation's secrets 
and in particular on the operations side, you're entrusted with people's lives who yeah. agree to come spy for the United States. And so there are some sacrifices for sure, but but there's a there's a feeling that you know you are you are amongst the elite. You're at the tip of the spear, and so you know that that certainly for me kind of overcame any any kind of hesitation or reticence. I will say that you know my I have a lot of relatives who are uh, you know obviously I'm a Greek background, but who live mm-hmm. kind of all over the world and uh, have that same Greek heritage. And they they you know until I retired, um, they never knew where I worked, and uh-huh. so that was that was certainly an interesting conversation. Um, but you know at the in the end, why was I always running around to Afghanistan and Iraq when things kicked off? I think they probably had their suspicions. So <laughs> I, I don't think anyone was all that surprised. To yeah. Be honest. You know, you've alluded to it, but, you know, yeah, you're giving up on one sense, the ability to kind of live your life with minimal barriers. But on the other sense, you're gaining basically this feeling that you're entrusted with some of the most sensitive information. And and that feeling, it must have been incredible to see and feel the effects of your work getting done. I mean, I know you were directly responsible for for work that was on the front page of news around the world many times. So, right. Especially towards the end of my career, when I became, you know, fairly senior, I would always love talking to the young officers um, who were coming in, you know, uh, you know and, and kind of going after, you know, any target, whether they were in, you know, the Near East, uh, you know, uh, uh, division or, you know, Europe, Eurasia, or going after, you know, going Russia or, or anything like that. Because I would say that very rarely do you find a job where the fruits of your labor will end up, you know, on the front page of every paper in the Western world. Now, no one's going to know about it, but, you know, you were a witness to history and you were also at times, you know, helping shape and make history. And it's pretty, pretty amazing. But I'll go back one more time to the key component of life as an operations officer is that, you know, our job is to spot, assess, develop, recruit, and handle agents. And an agent is not someone from the CIA. An agent is a foreigner we recruit to spy for the United States. And, a lot of times their life is in our hands. And that is a tremendous responsibility mm. because if you screw up, someone's going to die. Yeah. That's a pretty kind of heavy weight on your shoulders. And you, you take things, you know, your tradecraft, your job, your profession very seriously. And so that to me was, uh, was, was, was pretty remarkable. Um, and, you know, and certainly kind of, you know, fueled my desire to, to do, do my job correctly, but also, you know, later on in leadership positions to, to help others do so. Yeah, no kidding. Let's talk a little bit more, you know, about what your job was specifically, as you said, you know, to to recruit spies, basically. And you, you go through this training and, and I'm sure it's unlike anything else you'd really ever done, even though you'd been in the agency for a little bit by this point. Um, was there anything that surprised you in regards to how successful, you know, certain tactics you were learning were, were supposed to be or, or how successful they were in, in, in practice? So, so I think, so first of all, you know, uh, espionage is the second oldest profession. You know, I think the first, the oldest profession is prostitution. So, you know, that <laughs> so this is where we're uh, headed now, but it's, it's so, so look, the, the, the basics, the, you know, the, you know, the fundamentals of it are, are kind of, are timely. Um, for me, the training was, it was, what was interesting was how good it was. Um, cause it, again, the job of an operations officer is to, to, you know, overturn those rocks, you know, find those you know, those the, the unique individuals who are, you know, in essence, susceptible, who are interested in working for the United States government. And so, you know, we it's 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 based on kind of human nature and intuition. But you're looking for, pe- for people who have some kind of vulnerability. Um, you know, maybe they were they were not doing well uh, at work. They were passed over for promotions. Maybe they're a member of a religious minority in their particular country. Mm-hmm. Remember, they perhaps they have a, a child or a relative who needs medical care in the United States. Or maybe it's ideology, you know, just just loving kind of the, the prospect of you know, living and working for a, you know, a democratic state like the United States. And so, uh, you know, ultimately you're just looking for that. Yep. Uh, and, uh, and, and, you know, it, it, the, the training is, is very realistic. And I'll tell you that the, the kind of the biggest surprise to me is, uh, you know, how much the kind of the, 
the fundamentals of recruiting, um, you know, that you that you go through in training actually do work in real life. And, yeah. and look, I'll just I'm not giving away any secrets here. You know, first of all, everything I say is has been blessed by the agency's kind of publication review board. I talk right. and write a lot about this and they're fine with that. Um, you know, as long as I kind of, you know, uphold my secrecy agreement, but the, every espionage, every intelligence service does the same thing. You know, they're, as they're looking for people to recruit, they're looking for, for kind of vulnerabilities that would, um, that are, that exist already. You know, I've never had, you know, my wily ways did not convince anyone ever to spy yeah. for the United States. You're really finding people who are who in some essence, in some essence are, you know, predisposed because there's some condition in their life that's going to make them, um, you know, be vulnerable to an approach. Yeah. That American ideal, right. That that kind of proved to be tremendously helpful in doing that over and over. I think many people have called into question over the last right. four years with the, with the Trump administration uh, about how that may have affected the agency's ability to recruit people to do that. But um, I'm curious what your experience was in that respect. So, so look, I think in the days of the Cold War, that you know, people spied a lot for ideology. You know, Soviets were very successful with the Cambridge Five. You know, so, you know, recruiting uh, penetrations of British intelligence because these were these were young kids who became were communists in college and then they went off to spy. They joined the British intelligence service and the, and the Soviets recruited them. So mm-hmm. same thing with us. We were able to recruit uh, officials from the Soviet Union, who of course were were very upset about the you know the terrible economic and, and you know political uh, conditions in their country. Mm-hmm. I think things are a little different now, and that and that people spy generally. Um, for more personal reasons, they agreed to do that. So again, that what I talked about before, whether it's a financial vulnerability or, or, or perhaps they've hit the glass ceiling. So, so I say this because I, I and I've talked and I've wrote, written about. You know, was there a, a, a I call it a Trump effect? You know, I mean, yep. Trump was so divisive overseas. Um, you know, would this would this um, hinder, uh, you know, uh, a foreigner's desire to to you know work clandestinely for the United States? And and my conclusion in the end, and I, I worked the last two years, I was still at the agency the Trump administration, that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that business was, you know, was, it was going on as usual. Uh, now, you know, you can have a separate kind of theoretical argument. Would this have occurred for, you know, if, if Trump had won? Um, uh, I don't know, but, but ultimately, you know, we were still able to, to do our job. And that's one of the great things about CIA is that despite all the, you know, which I think was ridiculous, you know, rhetoric and talk of this deep state, you know, CIA yeah. officers just put their nose to the ground and, and did their job during the, their four years of the Trump administration. Right. So, you know, ultimately we really are an apolitical organization. That's good. So on this podcast, I like to do a segment called Explain That Gram, where I pick a photo, usually from from Instagram, but it can really be any social media. <laughs> so you're big on Twitter. So I, I picked oh, a photo God, from, yeah. from your Twitter. <laughs> but um. It was a photo you posted uh, in in June 2019 of the of the memorial wall at headquarters, uh, yeah. and I, I wonder, you know, what what had seen that that wall every day uh, remind you of, and 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 what did it really mean to you? So the, you know, the wall to us is 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 sacred ground. You know, as as you walk into CIA headquarters, there's the memorial. You know, it's on the right. It's it's it's, it's 100. I think it's 133 stars now. You know, etched in marble. And these signify, you know, CIA officers lost in the line of duty um, since our founding, I think, in, you know, in 1947. And so so ultimately, it's a you know, it's 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 pretty sacred for a number of reasons. One is, you know, it shows, um, you know, the cost of kind of defending uh, the United States. But number two is, you know, as, as especially as you, uh, you know, you're there for a number of years is that, you know, some of these names on the wall. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it becomes very personal. And so, you know, the one thing that I always say is that it, it was, uh, you know, I, 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 every day I, you know, walked into headquarters and if you can't kind of get a, you know, uh, added kind of kick in your step, 
or added motivation seeing that wall, you know, you're really in the wrong line of business. And so look, CIA is a bureaucracy that can be frustrating at times, particularly when you're, you know, working from headquarters, but, yeah. but ultimately that wall is kind of your, you know, what drives you. Um, because there was a lot of people who made the, the, uh, the ultimate sacrifice and, and, you know, clearly since nine 11, there's been many names added. So, so yeah. in particular, there's, there's officers I knew, you know, very well who are, whose names are etched on that wall. You know, yeah. I think of their families and I think of, of kind of the pain, um, that, you know, uh, you know, spouses and children are, are you know, are continue to go through. And, right. and so that certainly, I think motivates a lot of us. Yeah. Well, when you found yourself in, in Iraqi Kurdistan as a volunteer, what, what was going through your head in the first few days or weeks? You know, in, in late 2002, we, you know, we kind of set up shop up in, in, in Kurdistan in Northern Iraq, mm -hmm. um, you know, with a, with a, you know, kind of a joint CIA special, uh, uh, CIA co-located with the special operations forces. And so, you know, our job there was to, um, in essence, you know, uh, collect intelligence on, on the, the regime of, of, uh, of Saddam Hussein. You know, we weren't sure at that time whether, you know, there would be a war. I think looking back, you know, everyone had a pretty good idea. But still, yeah. there was kind of machinations going on at the UN, and so ultimately, our job was to collect things like you know order of battle, which is which is in essence the disposition of the Iraqi military, mm -hmm. um, to see you know if there's any kind of disaffected regime members who are willing to assist. Right. Uh, and How old kind were of, you at this time? I, I mean, that was that was 2000 and just uh, 2002. So you know, I'm 51 now. I, I think the the one thing that that you'd be surprised in terms of CIA officers. We actually do our best work, our most sensitive work, when we're the with the most junior in our career, and there's two reasons mm -hmm. for that. One is, you know, you're you're, you're at a training, um, yep. uh, so you're fresh in, yeah. in everything you've learned. But number two, you're considered clean, and that in essence, that you know, over 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 my career, especially over multiple assignments, you know, lots of hostile intelligence services kind of get the you know your gigs up. They have an idea of who you are, right? Um, the more junior you are, though, again, your skills are fresh and, and you're, you're really not um, known uh, to, to our adversaries. So, sure, you know, we were young, but but again, it's a, as I told you before, what an extraordinary job when you're entrusted with people's lives and, and you know, additional lot of a lot of money uh, right. uh, in your in your hands. And so, you know, the, the youth of the officer does, is that is, uh, is 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 actually disproportionate because you actually do more sensitive and and, and you know, pretty wild stuff earlier on <laughs> in your career. Later on in your career, you're a manager and it's more boring. <laughs> well, as you mentioned, you were working really closely with the paramilitary teams. Um, right. you were, were you were your chief of base there? Is that right? I was I was a base chief in Afghanistan years okay. later. So, I, I, so in 2011 to 2012, I ran one of our paramilitary bases uh, in, uh, in eastern Afghanistan. It was a pretty unique time. Um, and, a, and a unique mission and just, you know, it was, it was you know, primarily counterterrorism. Yeah. And, uh, and our job was to kind of find, fix and help the U.S. military, you know, finish Taliban and Al Qaeda. Um, so we had a very pure mission, I would call it. You know, there's no gray areas. Um, you know, we weren't really doing kind of, you know, village stability operations or winning hearts and minds. We were there to kill terrorists or help help the U.S. military kill terrorists. And so right, right. Um, it was it was, you know, I had. A incredible motivated crew, and uh, and uh, it, you know, and, and what I what I tell people again, going back to uh, you know, inspiring and mentoring younger officers, you know, going off to to a war zone for a considerable period of time. For me, this was this was a, a year. Um, you know, you, you come back and you walk taller. Uh, you know, now nobody knows. You know, you know, you've come back to Northern Virginia, DC. No one knows where you were unless you you know unless it's your friends. But yeah, but ultimately, you know, you did something pretty spectacular. And clearly, you put yourself, you know, your life in danger. 
Um, you're yeah. gone from your families for for a year, but you did something that that no one can ever take away from you. And I'm really proud of that time there. And and one of the things I love talking about, you know, is is how you know even even to this day. So that was 2011 when we were uh, 2012. Sorry, I returned. Um, so you know, we're eight nine years nine years later. You know, my team and the team members we all still gather at a kind of a you know, famous local bar here in, in the Northern Virginia area called the Vienna Inn. It's a mm-hmm. it's a great dive bar. It's an old CIA hangout. But each year, you know, or every several months, we're all gathered together and just kind of tell war, war stories because the camaraderie of being together, seven thousand miles from home, you know, getting rocketed every morning and really uh-huh. going after bad guys. It's a it's pretty unique, and so I'm, I'm really proud of that. Really proud of the men and women who I served with. Um, and so it's a, that was a that was a special time. Yeah, I wonder if you could speak a little bit more to kind of what your day to day was like there in in Schkin. Sure. So, so, you know, I, I would wake up, uh, I would never had an alarm clock, um, because we get rocketed every morning, you know, Al Qaeda would rocket us every morning, guaranteed at 6am. So it was oh a nice God. wake up call. You know, I'd, I'd literally be, uh, start a Skype conversation with my, with my family back home. Cause it just, the way the time difference worked out, it was, yeah. it was, it was convenient. And you know, the computer would be shaking, you know, our, our base was designed to be able to withstand 107 millimeter rockets, but it was, it certainly was an interesting way to wake up and uh, oh and then, gosh. you know, you, so then there's, you know, there's, there's, you know, from what I can tell you, you know, there's, there's a couple of things you do. You're obviously meeting into, you know, people who are going to give you information on, on where, you know, terrorists are located, yeah. um, where their disposition, what their plans or intentions are, uh, and, uh, and kind of, kind of go from there. You know, every day mm-hmm. was different. Um, sometimes I'd go out, you know, on, on some patrols with our paramilitary, uh, branch, uh, you know, members and, yeah. you know, as the base chief, certainly they don't, they never want, to, you know, I think they, yeah, we always joke like, you know, as, as a leader, I wanted to kind of go out with, uh, uh, these folks. I didn't want to always yeah. be holed up in the base. Um, but I always got the suspicion that if, you know, if I went out there, you know, once every two or three weeks or so on a patrol, you know, they're ultimately, they, they planned it the night before not to get the base chief killed. Um, so <laughs> That's good. Know, we, I think we maybe drove around in circles, um, yeah. but no, but it's, a, it was important to, to kind of, you know, see our forces. And then I spent a lot of time with our kind of Afghan partners. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are these are kind of you know uh, members of the Afghan military who were really you know integral in our in, in the fight against Al Qaeda and, and and the Taliban, and we worked very closely with them. And so you know, I mean, it's you know, people always I, I have asked me, you know, what was it like working with the Afghans? The Afghans I worked with were an incredible fighting force in, East, in eastern Afghanistan, and yeah. you know, I broke bread with them all the time. We ate with them. You know, we lived right next to them. It was there were far many, far more Afghan, uh, uh, you know, uh, forces than, uh, than, than Americans there at our, at our kind of unique base. And so, yeah. um, talk about a, you know, if you want, and, and of course at that time I would think back to, you know, when I read that book caravans by James Michener, um, when I was, you know, when I was a, a, a young kid. And so here I am there, you know, years and years, you know, 40 years later, not 40, maybe 30 years later, um, in my lifetime, but, uh, you know, that was, uh, that was certainly a different time period from when that book was written, but it was sure. pretty amazing that I had the kind of the same kind of experiences. Yeah. Um, I, that's what I, talked about. So that was, that was pretty unique. Yeah. And I, I apologize if I'm, if I'm mixing up basically your, your time in, in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. No, 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 but... it's, not. It's, a, it's, it's a, it's a giant blur anyhow. So <laughs> <laughs> obviously the ground branch team, they're kind of more responsible for, um, let's say, uh, executive action. Um, and you're trying to find these people right and 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 develop relationships with them and were you ever able to just go for a walk on the street to to kind of do this or meet with people like no i was too too dangerous so we had too dangerous for that ways of of meeting folks and communicating with them but no it was it was far too dangerous i mean you you know walking you can't really wander out into a village not in 
not not in eastern Afghanistan no, where, right. uh, where we were. And so and and, you know, the, the, the characterization of kind of the ground branch folks, look, these are, you know, ultimately, you know, uh, the, the paramilitary branch of, of CIA is 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 not a direct action uh, element. It really is. It, they, you know, they, they collect intelligence as well. Mm. You know, there was a there was a, you know, uh, many years ago, this is actually out right after Iraq kicked off or maybe it was Afghanistan in, in the early days. Time magazine. Um, you know, wrote its big articles on the cover. I think they called it the secret army or something silly like that. But ultimately, these are, you know, individuals who are, you know, basically, you know, frontline intelligence collectors, um, who, you know, who are able to operate just in kind of, you know, denied areas and war zones. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, one of the things that we did, which I think was, was really important, you know, after, uh, certainly after 9-11 is that kind of the, the line case officers like, like myself, I wasn't on the paramilitary side, but, you know, as long as we had the requisite training and wanted to go, we were able to do those things as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was kind of a, it was a kind of a fusion of, of the two. Um, yeah, that makes uh, sense. It, it, it worked fine. Uh, ultimately it's a, it's a really unique capability of, uh, of the agency. And, uh, and, you know, it's, uh, you know, as, as the war zones wind down now, it's going to be interesting to see kind of what happens mm-hmm. with, uh, with these, you know, with, with really kind of some unique individuals who we, we, uh, we kind of need in our arsenal. Um, yeah, right. So that's going to be a, a challenge for the, for the next director. It must have been pretty odd to view a culture through the lens of this work being hyper vigilant of, of physical harm all the time. And how how are you able to appreciate the culture and the people, and then also kind of uh, let go of that or transition away from that as you as you came back? No, it's, it's, it's a great. So there's two elements. So most of my career, you know, most of anyone's career, unless you're with with the paramilitary forces. So you know, I spent two years in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, but the, the majority of my career was was you know working overseas in the Middle East, but kind of more traditional kind of brick and mortar U.S. government platforms. And so mm-hmm. you know, there's there's a big difference between being in Iraq or, or Afghanistan um, and how we kind of spot assess, develop and recruit agents, you know, in a war zone. It's more dangerous. You know, ordinarily you're on the street in a regular kind of country in the Middle East and you do develop these personal relationships and you have this kind of tremendous cultural awareness and understanding. You know, uh, you know, a lot of us went through Arabic training, so you speak the language or for me, I went through Arabic training and didn't speak it very well, but you know, mm-hmm. muddled through. Uh, but ultimately, you know, you become an expert in that in that country and in the people. And in fact, you know, the, the more time you're away from the U.S. government facility, the the, the more effective an officer you are. Because, yeah, you know, sure. one of the things I always said is that, you know, a CIA case officer should be the smartest person in any country um, mm-hmm. because they're not just hanging out uh, uh, with kind of the elite of that country. They'll know that, you know, they'll know the street um, and, and that kind of sentiment. Now, war zone stuff is just entirely different. So, yeah, um, it, it is harder to gain that cultural appreciation. Yeah, it was for me in Iraq and Afghanistan for sure, um, but the missions are different as well. So, so ultimately, in, in Afghanistan, our job was to you know to track down Taliban and Al Qaeda. If I'm in any other country, the job is going to be to report maybe on the political situation, the military yeah. situation, um, more kind of the internal dynamic, or or maybe you're still, or maybe you're going after you know what we call third country targets, mm-hmm. which would be you know, what are the Russians or Chinese up to? You know, if you're, okay. if you're posted in an African country, for example. Got it. Let's assume, you know, those, um, the, the situation in, in Afghanistan and Iraq kind of died down in the next, continue to die down in the next few decades. Do you think you would like to go back and visit at some point when it's less turbulent? <laughs> Not Afghanistan. <laughs> Not interested there to go back there. Uh, no, I'm joking. I mean, I think, look, my time in Afghanistan was in, was in really, you know, in, in the Pashtun area, the top Pashtun belt, which is extremely backwards. Uh, most of the Afghans I dealt with didn't read or write. They couldn't tell cardinal direction. I think if you were, if you were posted in Kabul, it's mm-hmm. very different. There were very sophisticated and educated folks there. So 
No, but my, but to, to be honest, my feelings for Afghanistan are not the same for other parts. Um, Iraq is entirely different. Um, I would love to go back to Iraq one day, but it's certainly far too dangerous to enjoy anything there. Yeah. Uh, the countries that I miss the most, um, and I have to be careful. So, so, you know, based on my kind of agreements with the agency or the secrecy agreements, I really, I don't talk about places I was posted to yeah. by naming the countries, but, but, uh, you know, the places I have visited, I can certainly talk about, but, you know, I, I, I love Jordan, um, mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, my kind of time going in and out of, out of Jordan was, uh, was fascinating. Um, same thing kind of with Israel and the Palestinian areas. And so, yeah, there's certainly places I'd be very interested in going back, um, yeah. uh, you know, post post pandemic, you know, something else that, that I do, I like to ask people is, is what hardship has defined your character? Oh, sure. What a, what a, what a, what a great question. I think, you know, the key thing on the role of an operations officer is, you know, is, is dealing with kind of adversity and ambiguity. And so just, I mean, think about, you know, this, I, I, I always talk about, you know, how, how espionage operations are like baseball. So, you know, if you hit 300, you're an all-star, that means mm-hmm. you fail seven out of 10 times. And so same things with, with being a, uh, you know, a CIA officer. So ultimately we're looking for individuals who want to help the United States, but you got to overturn a lot of rocks. Mm-hmm. And so, so, you know, ultimately um, you fail a lot. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and, and that's okay. And it's, so it's how you deal with that, how you deal with that adversity is, is really important. And so, yeah. you know, I always, it's a, not a nine to five job. So you gotta be out every single night, you know, on the streets. Um, and so, uh, so it's, it's, it's a place where I think you have to have, you know, like kind of, uh, uh, a thick skin, mm-hmm. um, getting rejected. If, if you can't take rejection, you're in the long line of wrong line of work. Yeah. Um, some people are not going to want to work with you or not going to want to talk to you. Yeah. Um, and then the last piece you know, I think that, you know, there are, there are, you, you have to have this kind of, uh, and it's, it's, it's I think more of a character of just a sense of adventure. And yep. so, you know, especially if you live in Africa or in the Middle East, you know, are you going to freak out every time your power goes off, <laughs> your power goes out? Well, it's going to happen all the time. What about there's, you know, there's no running water for weeks on end. I mean, it's just, you know, things that you end up just dealing with and, and kind of, you have, you know, you have this sense of adventure, your family ends up having it as well. Um, <laughs> and association. so by association, because again, you know, it's a, uh, yeah, I, I remember when we, when we came back from the Middle East, my son said, we, we saw a baseball field for the first time when we were playing Little League. He's like, dad, this is amazing. There's grass on the field. Huh. You know, he's been used to playing on dirt. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it's just a different appreciation for things. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I think power running water, um, you know, not having, you know, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know, the, there's been so many terrorist threats against U S facilities. Like it's, it's, you know, it's, it's nice not having your place of work wanting to be blown up by Al Qaeda <laughs> every other week. No kidding. Um, you know, so it's, it's, it's just, but you get used to it. Yeah. I want to bring up another incident and I know it was hard for you, but it's something that the agency certainly learned a lot from, which was the, the bombing in Kaust where, um, a number of agents that were your colleagues were, were killed. And, and I, I'm kind of curious, um, if you can talk about how, how that happened and then, um, what the agency learned from that. Sure. So, you know, that's a, that's a terrible story um, that I think that, you know, uh, it certainly was a, it was a, a tragedy that day. Uh, you know, I've talked about it on and off um, again, you know, with everything being cleared uh, by, uh, by, by the agency. But I think, you know, ultimately it's a, it's, it's a story of seven heroes um, who, who, you know, who tragically gave their lives uh, in support of what was, you know, our, our counterterrorism mission as we were trying mm-hmm. to, you know, to penetrate um, senior levels of, of Al Qaeda uh, and their and their affiliates, and so, you know, I think that that you know what's been said in public is is accurate in terms of things such as you know that we really, uh, uh, you know, need to have you know, a sense of humility and, and kind of uh, 
you know, not myopic thinking. On, and sometimes um, I was guilty of a lot of this. You know, we were very excited about the possibilities of, of you know, recruiting a penetration of Al Qaeda. And we mm-hmm. were ultimately we were um, uh, proven wrong, but also the, the critical need for security measures. Um, and so mm-hmm. I think that that ultimately, you know, the if there's anything that would come out of the events in coast is that we have to you know, never let our guard down. Yeah. Um, in terms of, of, you know, security for operational meetings. Um, you know, in this case, it was a double agent that, that fooled uh, the agency and, and ultimately just with, with some kind of, you know, security breakdowns uh, that, that, uh, that occurred, you know, uh, he was able to get too close to agency officers who were then killed. Yeah. Um, you know, but I, and I think about, um, you know, all the, all the great security professionals that I've, I've worked with over the years. And it's, uh, I think that probably the biggest lesson is we have to we have to listen to them more. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I have a lot of regret and, and, and guilt over what happened. I remember when I received my promotion to senior intelligence service, I, I felt guilty that day. Um, just was that I'd been involved in the, uh, in that operation. And so, you know, the, the best way we can honor, uh, uh, you know, those seven heroes is to never allow that to happen again. Um, yeah. and, and realize that it's a, you know, it's a, it, it can at times be a terribly dangerous line of work. Yeah. Well, for anybody listening who, this perhaps sounds familiar. I know this was this event was um, depicted in the movie Zero Dark Thirty, even though I don't think it necessarily had anything to do with Bin Laden, from what I understand. But uh, switching gears a little bit, I, I'm curious if you ever came across any tourists while deployed to these war zones who are being particularly adventurous. I know there's like a number of tour operators who would sell these crazy like war zone experiences. And I'm right. just curious if your paths ever crossed. I, I never did. But, you know, you, you heard this silliness sometimes, you know, I think more so in Afghanistan. And, and I'll, I'll just say that, you know, people who would who would go on such a tour um, are being, uh, you know, in, incredibly selfish because if they end up inevitably getting captured, there's yeah. going to be an enormous U.S. government effort to try to recover them. And that's a that's a complete waste of time and resources. Now, we are, we are always going to try to you know recover an American. If yeah. they're kidnapped, but um, you know, I mean, I, I saw this happen. You know, I mean, you've, you've heard this happening in Yemen. You certainly, certainly yeah. in other places. And for God's sakes, there's absolutely no reason to be there. Um, hmm. But the, but and, and, and I think you know, on a personal level, you know, it caused some resentment uh, because you know these are not people being kidnapped out of Paris. They're, yeah. they're in places they really shouldn't be to begin with. And, and the U.S. government is always going to uh, deploy resources to try to uh, to recover them. But really, wasn't for Iraq and Afghanistan. Maybe Afghanistan. There was always, there there were some hikers. I think who. Who did some silly stuff there, but I think Yemen is a perfect example of of, uh, and you saw a lot of Europeans going there as well. And I would just huh. always shake my head because you know that inevitably we'll be involved in trying to get them back, and they, they shouldn't be there in the first place. Yeah, I mean they must just stick out like a sore thumb too. Um, I imagine uh, a lot of these the locals have probably never even seen you know white person. Well, they're, before. they're also there. They, they're they're in a place they have no training, they have no security. You know, this is this is you know that, that that's not adventure tourism. That's no. you know that's war. It's war zone tourism. That's yeah. uh, that's pretty pretty crazy. There's there's plenty of adventure stuff you can do. I mean, one, right. of, the, one of the great trips that, that I took one time with my family is we went to uh, to Wadi Rum in Jordan. Mm. You know, and camped out. And this is you know Wadi Rum is a desert area in southern Jordan where Lawrence of Arabia kind of had his yeah. his encampments. Um, and it was spectacular and there's everything from kind of hardcore camping to, you know, what we called foo-foo camping where they set up your camp and it's yeah. like you know, the old British days where you had like a, you know, inside your, uh, inside a structure, you had your, you know, a, a, you know, a mirror and a nice bed and a, and a dresser and there'd be a chef cooking you meals. But boy, yeah. these, you know, there's plenty of adventure, the adventure stuff to do that, that doesn't get to the extent of, uh, <laughs> you don't have to go to <laughs> a war zone. zone. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, 
What are some of the thought processes and considerations uh, that you learned at the agency for evaluating information that you that you wish the public would kind of implement into their everyday life now? Oh, that is a fantastic question, especially now with um, so much disinformation that is yeah. you know propagated in the media. So first and foremost, when the intelligence community makes an assessment on something, it's never based on a single source. Um, there's always going to be multiple sources. And so if, if we come up with an assessment that X, Y, and Z is going to happen, you guys hear that? There's, a, there's a source involved. So you guys, <laughs> that's right, man, these days people are just posting stuff. I don't know. Right. I heard it somewhere. It's like, you got to have multiple, a source. You need multiple sources yeah. to make a case. And yeah. so, so, you know, that's, that's a, that's, that's actually true. So, you know, everything else, if, if not, it's just kind of raw, unevaluated information. So, even if I was as, as a case officer obtained, you know, a, a piece of intelligence from a source, even with great access that, you know, the leader of this country is going to uh, or, or there's or the rebel group in this country is going to, uh, you know, there's going to be a coup attempt. Mm-hmm. OK, that's interesting. And it's worth follow up. But in, in, unless you can confirm that with multiple sources, um, uh, you know, there is there, it's, it's not considered, you know, finished uh, a finished product or, or it's certainly not considered worthy of of, you know, basing foreign policy decisions. And so yeah. what we see now at the advent, of course, of social media, whether it's Twitter or Instagram or something like that, people throw stuff out there and then it becomes kind of, um, you know, conventional wisdom. And sometimes it's based on nothing or sometimes it's based on a single source. And that's that's really damaging. Yeah. Um, and that's just not something that the intelligence community ever does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, so I think that's the big difference. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you guys have a lot at stake to... Uh to take action on information that's not correct. So well, the U S government does. I mean, you know, yeah. the last thing we would, you know, you, you don't, you don't want a foreign policy decision to ever be based on singles, you know, single threaded material. It's, it, you know, you want to get it right. And, and most intelligence officers, especially operations officers, you know, you, you collect some kind of, you know, hot, sexy piece of Intel and you're excited about it, but you also realize in the grand, in the big picture, this is a piece yeah. and that, that has to be kind of corroborated by, by all source reporting before any action can be taken. And, and you also, I mean, you don't want that on your shoulders, right? You know, so so in the in the event, and I, you know, I haven't seen it happen, but like if if for some reason we we made some kind of um, you know big foreign policy move based on a, a, a report from uh, that I had collected, and you ended up being wrong, you know, that's not something you want on your on your shoulders. So you you want to get it right. Yeah. And then the other point too is that people, I mean, you know, even even uh, uh, there's there's with the even with the advent now of social media. So someone can post something on Twitter. They might even think it's true, but it's not true. And so, you know, the idea of validating information is really important. Mm, Yep. Too many people not doing that at the moment. Right. You've written a lot about and have a ton of experience with leadership and and you have a book coming out about it, right? Right. So I have have a book coming out in June um, called Clarity in Crisis, and I'm really excited about it. It's published by HarperCollins, and it's based on kind of, you know, leadership pr- principles that I, div- that I kind of uh, learned from my time uh, at the agency, but I think it's a, uh, it'll be pretty, it's certainly applicable, applicable to all walks of life. And I'm, you know, and, it, and it's all about kind of leading under times of ambiguity because, because mm-hmm. I think anyone can lead when times are good, but this is, you know, it's a perfect time now, you know, with the age of COVID, but, but, you know, you want, you want to employ these principles. So when there are times where you don't have situational awareness, you really know what you're doing. And, and that's what I learned over time. I kind of, um, uh, realized by the end of the career, my career that I kind of had developed this system. And so I really, I was lucky that when I retired, I kind of put it on paper. Yeah. In your view, how do people maximize performance in, in the highest pressure situations? Cause you've certainly been in quite a few yourself. I, th- I think there's several fundamental things that, that you have to do. You know, number one is, you know, you, you, and this is, let's just start from kind of as a, as an organizational unit. I mean, you have to trust your people. 
Um, and so you have to have this kind of, you know, uh, coherent unit that has developed this kind of trust. I mean, I'll even call it kind of love, you know, uh, uh, for each other, you know, and it's, um, it's, you know, based on shared experiences, but it's based on you as a leader, you know, mentoring them and ensuring they're, they're trained correctly. But trust is really important. Um, number two is everyone has to know their roles. And so I, you know, one of my principles, I call, I call it the glue guy or the glue gal. And so, you know, not everybody's going to be a superstar. And, and, you know, one of my, some of my favorite examples are, you know, in, in, in war zone operations, um, you know, we had, and this is going to sound silly, but it's true. We had the CIA had incredible kind of cooks. And so hmm. why does that matter? Well, you're, you're deployed for a year. Um, you're running at night all the time. And so, so that, that person kind of in the rear, that cook has a really enormous integral part in the, in the functioning of a unit. And so you better celebrate that person just as much as the tip of the spear operator. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's, again, it's how, how you kind of, how you build a team. And then, you know, and, and, and one other piece has to do with adversity. I, you know, I call it, I, I, I say adversity is the performance enhancing drug for success, meaning that you have to fail um, uh, and fail a lot before you can really succeed in the end. And, and, yeah. and you can have so many different analogies on this, but, um, but understanding adversity and learning from adversity and having that kind of humility as well are, are really important yeah, uh, just uh, attributes. That constant pursuit of turning adversity into advantage. Yeah. Difficult thing to do, but you got to learn. Look, I mean, you know, Michael Jordan got cut from his high school basketball team. I, I mean, I love saying that all the time. Um, oh, wow, you know, I didn't so realize that. You know, and so, so th- these are the things that that really matter, and it, it you know it toughens you, and it, it, it you know it makes you kind of you know it teaches you a lot about uh, about yourself. And then you know one other thing that I that I talk a lot about is uh, is competition. Um, you know, and and so you know competition is good. You know, you want you want your you know all of the people on your team to compete to kind of strive to get better. And and you know I I always used to. Uh, use a method that I, that I call the stand up, you know, morning meeting. And so instead of telling everyone what to do, I'd, I'd get them in the morning and say, Hey, what did, you know, what did all the guys and gals do last night now? Mm-hmm. So, so as an operations officer, you do things, maybe at an agent meeting, maybe you're helping with counter surveillance, maybe you're looking at new operational sites to use. Maybe you, you had a lot of, you know, work to do in terms of typing up your reports, even, you know, yeah. typing is a great skill for a case officer, but <laughs> you go around and you ask people, what they did. And you don't want to be that one person who's, who said, uh, yeah, no, I, and I, I, I kind of took a knee and I watched, you know, I watched, uh, you know, the, the college basketball game. Um, sure. uh, and so, you know, and, and so then you have that kind of internal pressure to kind of rise up you know, all together and, and, and move forward. And so when you employ all these principles, when times are tough and, you know, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're left with kind of decision-making, um, you know, based, based on a lack of situational awareness, if you put all these things in place, you know, it makes things easier. You know, it's not foolproof, um, but there's a lot of times, you know, where, where I was able to make decisions. I, and as I look back, that were easy for me um, that a lot of people thought were really high risk, but they really weren't because mm-hmm. I kind of put these things, these foundations in place. And, and you know, you're not going to get it right every time, but, yeah. you know, uh, uh, you're gonna, you, you will get it right most of the time. Yeah. Well, um, kind of transitioning now a little bit to your experiences literally traveling, uh, you know, all over the world. And, and, I, and I'm actually curious before we dive into that all the way. Because I've heard you say that the CIA likes to speak with frequent flyers, like motivated, you know, business travelers, uh, for example, in in the sense that these people can can have valuable insight on on business in other countries. And I'm kind of curious if you could expand on that. Uh, well, I, I'm not sure if I said that precisely, but look at, at the at, like the, the there's there's always going to be you know interest in um uh in in talking to you know anyone that comes from the business 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 community who has kind of unique insights in, in certain countries and so mm-hmm. you know these are not these are this is not someone who's you know is going you know we're not going to recruit some, someone to do something like that but you know people who, who certainly travel in and out of interesting places there would always be 
um, you know, interest in, in, in speaking with them. I think, you know, one of the things I, I think about a lot is just, you know, whether it's a, you know, a, a businessman, you know, with a million miles on his frequent his or her frequent flyer account, um, you know, we think the same way. So, you know, I love, you know, one of the things that if you got a bunch of CI officers around, you know, around a bar talking, they, 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 there's a couple different things they, they, they joke about. One is, you know, all their crazy kind of gastrointestinal illnesses in the third world. <laughs> um, but, but other things, and you'd think there'd be war stories and there are, but the other things they talk about, you know, what's the best airline or the best hotel in Bangkok or yeah. what's, what's the best airport to go through or the best restaurants. And so, huh. you know, you have this kind of encyclopedic knowledge um, and, and, you know, the joke is like, you know, we always try to find a way to fly business class and there are rules for the U S government on how, how yeah. to do this, but you know, they, they relaxed this several years ago where if you accumulated enough points, you could be upgrading all the time. So, you know, we, yeah. there's a, there's a, a, you know, a small cottage industry within the intelligence community on, 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 you know, on the, on the best of, uh, across the board all over the world. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's, it's, I think that's very similar to, to yeah. kind of, you know, your audience who's absolutely um, who's really big into, big into travel and, and, uh, and, uh, and kind of seeing the world. Yeah. So, I mean, what were some of your favorite airlines? You flew in and out of the Middle wow. East a lot. So, so, you know, everyone loves Emirates and I do too. Yeah. I mean, Emirates is just a, it's a fantastic airline. You know, the, the guild with Emirates is you always wonder how much, um, you know, assistance they're getting behind the scenes by the, by the Emirati government, oh, yeah. um, uh, to stay, you know, to stay profitable when yeah. U.S. airlines cannot, but I'll tell you that the, you know, the service and the food, um, on Emirates is, uh, is, is spectacular. And, uh, you know, they, they generally, you know, uh, utilize, you know, newer aircraft. Um, and, yeah. and of course the airport in Dubai is a, is a gem. I mean, I would, right. you know, I, I think I bought my first Rolex, you know, at, at the, at the Dubai duty free, huh. um, 20 years ago. Uh, and I still have it. <laughs> That's the, awesome. The GMT master. Um, it's the one with the red and blue bezel. And so, um, Emirates was always always a treat, and the interesting thing about Emirates now, of course, is as your listeners will know, is that you know with I guess the Friendly Skies Agreement, you know they they fly, you know I mean, I, I flew Emirates to Athens from Newark last oh. year, um, yeah, they had and so you know, fifth you know Americans are able to take advantage of that much more. Um, I've been on Emirates business class. I've never flown on the Emirates on the three eighty on that first class with kind of your own cabin. So with that's the shower. That's a, it's a oh yeah, the shower. That's a bucket list item. I want my my own PJs. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, if you have some airline miles and you need to. Spend them. Let, let me know. I'll try to help you. There's other hidden jewels. Like in Africa, Kenya Airways is fantastic. Um, hmm. There's new planes, great food. Um, I, you know, I, I thought they were they were very good. My favorite, but I'll, I'll tell you one of my favorite stories about an airline, and that's with Austrian Air, Austrian Air, which is not, you know, yeah. I don't think it's enough, enough no, PR. They're kind of low at key. Point, at one point, we were flying, and it, you know, we had to fly to the Middle East. So, you know, there's the Fly America Act. So we have to fly from the, the U.S. to kind of intermediate stop in Europe and then Europe onto the Middle Eastern country. And so we're on actually an Austrian Air flight from from Washington to Vienna. And my kids were young and they were used to sitting in, in you know, in business class. And it was, uh, and yeah. it was probably on an Airbus. And so, you know, they sit down for the first time. They're super young and off out comes the chef with a little chef hat and they're having yeah. a lobster. Yeah. Oh. Right? And so and they love this. And so for that, that two years, we're going back and forth. They would always talk about where's chef. So then one <laughs> years later, uh, you know, or a couple years later, we're taking a trip to Disney World in one of our R&Rs, you know, our, our, our vacations. Mm-hmm. And we're flying United or American. And so we're flying from, you know, from D.C. down to down to Orlando. And we get in there and my kids walk into the airplane, immediately take a quick right into first class and sit down. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> They're like, well, we always sit here. And I'm like, uh, no, dad's paying for this flight, not the U.S. government. So we're yeah. all back in like 30F. Yeah. And so we're back there. And my, I think my son or my daughter looked at me and said, dad, this sucks. And by the way, we're <laughs> chef. 
Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it was, uh, we were spoiled. Sorry about the double digit uh, seat number there. Yep. Did you, did you have like a go-to story when people ask, would ask what you did? Cause obviously you just have no incentive to allude to any. Yeah, you work for the U S government, um, you know, in some capacity, you know, so you have some kind of cover story. I won't even say what it was for me, but you know, yeah. uh, yeah, and, and I can, I can weave a pretty boring story of what I did. I won't say what I said, but I'll, I'll, there's, there's a, there's famous lines when someone said, you know, they, someone asked them, you know, where do you work? And you say the department of state. And some people would say, yeah. you know, Hey, can you help me get a driver's license? Oh, <laughs> and they're like, so, you know, it's, it's, well, it's not really the state of New Jersey, yeah, the DMV, yeah. but okay. So you can, you can come up with something pretty boring. Yeah. Um, cause you know, you're supposed to be in the shadows and not really, you know, cause attention to yourself. Did you ever have issues with, with customs, um, either coming back or, or transiting through other countries? No. Uh, you know, the, that's all the, taken care of. Yeah. Well, not, 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 I mean, no, it's, you know, you're on, a, guess, you're on a, a diplomatic passport coming back or, okay. or, or, you know, or, or, you know, I mean, you, the issues with customs or, or would be just like kind of anyone else. I mean, you can't certainly, you know, just because you have a diplomatic passport doesn't mean they're not going to ask you questions and search your, search your baggage. I mean, you know, one of the things coming back, you know, in Afghanistan and Iraq, there was an incredible pirated or industry of pirated DVDs. Yeah. Um, and this yeah. is serious and the U S government was really serious about this. So, so, and of course we thought it was great because all we did was watch movies there all the time. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, but as you're, as you're coming back for either for either R and R end of your, end of your posting or assignment, you know, in the war zone, you're like, all right, get rid of all those pirated DVDs. Cause if customs does go through your bags back oh. at, you know, JFK or Dulles, you're in, you're in, you're in some trouble because you really oh, yeah. are good. Then you can take that copyright issue seriously. So, yeah. um, but no, I mean, you know, the, the thing too is like you don't want to, you know, cause embarrassment to the United States government. So, you know, smuggling stuff is silly. There, there are yeah. plenty of stories of people accidentally kind of having a, you know, a, a magazine with bullets in it um, <laughs> in, in, their, in their bag. And so you always were really careful not to do that because yeah. people go nuts with that. And there's a lot of explaining. Yeah. It must have been a pretty stark contrast once you're sitting down in that Emirates business class seat coming back from a war zone. Like, what was that like? Yeah, so I, I remember uh, coming back, coming back from Iraq. I had been there for almost half a year. I'd gone six weeks without a shower. I'd taken a quick shower in Kuwait at a hotel, but I was still kind of fairly dirty. And I remember being on the plane coming back and it was, it was gross. I think my, as I, my wife said, hey, your ears are still black when I, when oh. I kind of got home. Um, yeah. And then, and then other times I remember coming back, come, uh, you know, flying from Afghanistan to just a Middle Eastern country in some of the same kind of nasty clothes that I had, uh, I had been in for a while. So, yeah, but it's, you know, uh, it's, it's, uh, again, you, you, uh, you know, certainly appreciate having that, you know, scotch yeah, <laughs> on, on yeah. Airlines after you've uh, maybe been in uh, places with no alcohol for a while. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Um, I can only imagine like, that's like the pinnacle of that romantic moment where you're just kind of looking out the window, reflecting on your, your trip. I mean, I can only imagine what sorts of things. So it's funny. I love airplanes. So my, I, I've loved airplanes forever. You know, my father was a mechanical uh, and aerospace engineer. He taught mm -hmm. at Rutgers university. Um, and he, you know, he worked with, you know, in, in kind of working on, uh, on airline safety for a long time, kind of developing kind of, you know, fuels that were less flammable. Um, Huh. Uh, but, and, and, and then worked on some, some engines, uh, as well. So, but I've always, I've loved flying, I've loved airplanes. And so I've always had that, that romantic notion. And one of the, one of the highlights, and I, I won't say which airline or which country, but on one of my trips back from the middle East, I was escorting a, a VIP delegation. Um, and we were mm -hmm. flying their country's airline and they, they allowed me to sit in the cockpit oh, cool. of a, of a Airbus A340. And I was, I, oh, wow. you know, 
And so it was those poor pilots because they said, hey, do you want to go up and sit in the cockpit? And five hours later, uh, I was still there asking them questions. Yeah. (laughs) What's this do? I thought it was the coolest thing ever. Yeah, that's Um, really cool. A rare experience these days. Yeah, it's an impossible experience these days and and probably not what was supposed to have happened there. But um, no, the, the whole idea of can I still have that romantic notion of flight now? If you fly domestically in the United States, you are disabused of that immediately. Yeah, you lose it pretty quick. Experience. Flying home from anywhere to the United States, it was always a charge for me. So I, I would always yeah. be excited leaving to go somewhere because there was it was adventurous. Yeah. So if I'm going to the Middle East, and I, I loved the region, and I loved the people, and I, you know, it was it was exciting. But it was also flying home, and and you know, I've I've had that you know that touchdown at, at Dulles. Um, so many times and you know as you're as you're yeah. kind of flying over the virginia countryside it's green and you're used to seeing only brown and desert right um and i would always and, and you know and, and sometimes you know your family's waiting for you um they haven't seen you for a while so i always got a, a huge huge charge out of that um, yeah and you know that's the kind of stuff that i miss with you know with the pandemic i i, I certainly haven't you know flown for over a year and and i'm looking forward to getting back yeah there's kind of nothing like going away to to come back and have that experience I, I love that. Yep. Uh, I, as I, as I loved representing the United States government overseas, um, I also never forgot what, you know, you know, coming back to America. Yeah. Um, and so that was always, always exciting for me. Um, I imagine you've probably been to some pretty, let's say simple airports in, in the middle East and probably elsewhere to any stick oh, out I, to you. Yeah, I mean, I, I remember in, in uh, <laughs> there's, there's been, the, the, I think the airport in, the worst airports I've ever been to was uh, certainly clearly was Islamabad in Pakistan, which is just chaos. And without an expediter, we, we'd be hope, hopelessly lost. It's just oh, wow. swarms of people. You know, Sanaa in uh, in in, uh, in Yemen as well was 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 uh, was interesting. Yeah. But my favorite airport was uh, was in Djibouti, um, hmm. which which uh, uh, and I and I think. I don't even know what happened. I think I arrived there. I came or went even without a visa one time and they let me on the plane or let me <laughs> off or just something. It was, you know, it was, it was certainly sketchy. Yeah. But, but I'll tell you that you're always looking for a good story. Um, so, so the, the worst experience that you have, you know, as long as it's not danger involved, you're like, yeah. Oh, this yeah, is so yeah. bad. I yeah. mean, the, 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 interestingly enough, the airport in Riyadh is a nightmare. Um, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, you know, huge lines and it, it kind of nasty folks. I, I never liked it, but then you have, you know, you know, flying into where European airports are just, are just, are extremely busy, but it's, it's more yeah. exciting when it's kind of an exotic locale. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I love, you know, going back and, you know, places, you know, the, the airport in Kenya in Nairobi, you know, yeah. there's, there's a game park that you literally fly. There's a game park right next to the airport. And so wow. if you have a long layover, you can go see elephants and tigers and giraffes and layover you know, safari. Yeah, it is, and and they're not dumb, but you you know because because a lot of people do that, but but not it's it's pretty cool because as you're you're flying over that as you fly into Kenya, and that's kind that's of really a, cool. A cool, a cool. I didn't realize, yeah. Mark, when you kind of think back on all these places you've been to, some very unique places, and um and all the travel that you have done, what impact has travel had on you, and what impact do you believe it has on the world? Clearly, you have an appreciation for different cultures and, and an understanding. I mean, I think that both myself and my family, you know, have this kind of tolerance for other people that you don't necessarily see in America a lot today. Um, you know, I, I hate to see kind of the, the poisonous debate, for example, about, about immigrants here. That's um, very sad to me. America is a land of immigrants. And having traveled all over the world and seeing what America means, um, you know, America is, is a place where the downtrodden want to come and escape come to a better life and so i think the demonization of immigrants is really sad to me 
So I have this incredible kind of, you know, multicultural view and appreciation for different people and cultures. I believe that America is this shining city on the hill, but I, I don't necessarily believe in American exceptionalism because there are a lot of other good people and systems and religions. And, and so, you know, America is a land of refuge which gives tremendous opportunity, but there's, there's a lot out there and, you know, people should be, you know, super open-minded. Um, and, you know, the other thing with travel, it also teaches you that we're all part of this kind of global existence, but just because I'm an American official doesn't mean I'm better. And uh, I'm a street sweeper in, in Cairo or in Amman. And I've, I've seen people at the lower economic strata of the, of the globe, you know, be incredibly kind to myself and my family. But the, the neat thing is seeing my kids who really have this, you know, appreciation for the world. That's Mark Polymeropoulos. You can find him on Twitter at mpolymer. And you can find his book, Clarity in Crisis, for pre-sale on Amazon. If you enjoyed the show or learned anything from it, it would be supremely awesome if you'd share it with someone who might find it interesting or rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Doing so helps other people find these episodes. As always, feel free to reach out on social with any questions or comments. Once again, I'm your host, Ian Agrimis, wishing you smooth travels. Peace!